Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox, plus a weekly recap of all consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or non-accredited, Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments, including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is Mike Fatta who is the founder of Manitoba Hemp Foods and was acquired for nine figures by Till Ray in 2019. Now he's an investor, coach, writer, and author of Grow, 12 Unconventional Lessons for Becoming an Unstoppable Entrepreneur, which will be released on March 29th, 2023. You can pre-order it on Amazon. Link is in the show notes. We discuss dropping out of high school, his health journey, how he founded and scaled Manitoba, how he thinks about investing today in better for you products, and his role in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Without further ado, here's Mike. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? Doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So I want to start from the very beginning. You you dropped out of high school when you were 13. What was the reason? What was was your first job after you dropped out? Well, they kind of hear that story. Yeah, um, I was I was always a smart kid in school, and uh, but um, by the time I hit like junior high, I was getting in trouble more uh, than uh, than the average kid, just because I was bored. And um, when when going into high school, um, 
I, it was just such a social club. I was overweight. I was the nerdy kid. I, I just didn't fit in and I didn't want to go. So I uh, told my mom I didn't want to go to school. And she said, you know, if you don't go to school, you got to get a job. And I was like, that sounds like a done deal. And so um, I started working construction uh, and uh, some heavy labor uh, jobs. Um, and I did a, I did that for, you know, five or six years from uh, carpentry, asphalt, uh, concrete, um, and, uh, and and all of that kind of before I got into business. So how did how did you then get into nutrition going from, I guess, construction to understanding nutrition? I know it also at one point you weighed over 300 pounds. Um, how, how did you, how did you also, when, when was also like the period that you decided to take, you know, your own personal nutrition kind of go on that journey? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I hit when I was 18 years old, I hit 300 pounds, um, was sick and tired all the time. Uh, wanted a girlfriend that wasn't just, uh, friends. Uh, and those were kind of the, the two big catalysts and, um, and then I just I started my uh, weight loss journey uh, and took about three years to uh, to lose the weight. Uh, and through that time, I was I was I was training in the gym. I was reading all these nutrition books and just getting more and more educated about things that I had no clue before that, you know, how the body worked, how how critical nutrition was, uh, cleansing, uh, different diet protocols. And, and, uh, and so from 18 to 21 was kind of that uh, metamorphosis stage for me and, uh, and came up came out as a 21 year old in, uh, in, in great shape, uh, after losing the weight and, and, and really interested in health and, and then got into the hemp food business. So is that once you lost the weight, is that when you decided to start a CPG brand or got interested in, in actually being an entrepreneur? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, part of the weight loss, you know, as I was experimenting on myself, one of the things was, uh, you know, I got into the fad diet of the no, no fat diet, which was popular in the mid 1990s. And so I, I, uh, I learned the hard way about how essential, essential fatty acids are omega three and omega six and, uh, and had read a book, uh, fats that heal fats that kill Dr. Udo Rasmus, um, that mentioned, you know, not only are they essential, but what are the best sources? And, and that's where I learned about hemp, uh, from a nutrition standpoint, I always thought hemp was cool. Uh, but when I learned that it, it was the rich, one of the richest sources of omega three and omega six, I just saw things were going to change from the no fat diet to the right fat diet um, and hemp could be a, a valuable product. And, and I just got super passionate about it and wanted to get into the business. What was because um, hemp at this time, it wasn't exactly legal in Canada, right? That was the first year when, when I got into the business was the first year that uh, that that uh, hemp was legalized in Canada. Did you sense that there was going to be kind of a gold rush that was happening into hemp or, and also why, why did Canada, like what I guess was the negative around hemp, um, like previously, I guess, just in, in like in, in general, uh, people's minds. Yeah. Oh, hemp and, and cannabis, uh, hemp and marijuana are both in the cannabis family of plants. So, uh, for many years, like hemp was outlawed, uh, in Canada for 50 years in the U S for, uh, 60, 60 some odd years uh, because of the confusion with marijuana. Um, and, and so even after it was legalized, hemp was legalized in Canada, uh, you know, from, from all these legacy misinformation campaigns, a lot of consumers were confused that you said, uh, I said, Hey, we're selling hemp seed. Uh, people would hear, Oh, you're selling marijuana. Can you get high? You know? And, uh, and so it, uh, even though it was legal, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know, I didn't feel so much, uh, going after a gold rush. I was, uh, I, I didn't know anything about, um, I knew some things about, 
uh, working and, and being in, in business, but I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. It was all self-learned. Uh, I was just super passionate uh, about health. And, uh, and so I became passionate about hemp foods and, and I wanted to talk about it all the time and learn more about it and solve the problems of how do we make this quality product and get it out to uh, get it out to people. So hemp was a big part of your journey when it came to your, your weight loss journey and, and getting, you know, healthy, getting right. Um, from, from that standpoint, what, um, but you know, I know that you, you, as you mentioned, like you came from a contraction background, what was kind of the first step for you starting, you know, this, um, this hemp business? Um, how did you think about, um, even formulation, getting the supply chain, right? Um, what was kind of going through your, your mind at that point? Yeah. Um, so there's two other co-founders of Mental Harvest, Martin and Alex, and, and they had worked to, uh, to get hemp. Uh, legal. And so uh, three of us came together and I would say I, I brought more of the passion of the um, of the consumer and the opportunity with the consumer. And and they had some resources already on on supply chain, growing the first hemp field, um, but learned learned everything from hemp oil. Hemp seed oil was our first product. And, and we did a bottling run of, of a couple hundred bottles of hemp seed oil. And I learned about how you press hemp seed oil and, and, and you know, how you put it into a bottle. I'd seen um, and because I was hanging out in health food stores and eating eating healthier, um, you know what flaxseed oil was, and and uh, and some of the other essential fatty acid rich oils. So we're taking some of the some of the um, uh, marketing from that and, and repurposing it. Uh, um, but you know, literally started with one health food store um, and sold the owner of the product and demoed in that store to sell it, and then and then we went to our first consumer show to talk to, uh, you know, a thousand consumers over the weekend and sold a couple hundred bottles of hemp oil. And then after that show, I thought, okay, after being in front of a large audience like that, we, we have something here. I think there's, there, if we keep on replicating that there, there could be, you know, millions of customers. So how, what was then when you realized, okay, we, we, we just sold 200 bottles. This is incredible. You know, we, there is something here. It seems like, it seems like this is not only that, you know, is this good for you and, 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 you know, a great product from that, from that, from, from that, uh, standpoint, but there also is legitimate demand here from the consumer, even if it's, you know, very, very early, what work, what was kind of the next steps? Like how were you able to get into retail and also convincing, you know, retail buyers that, Hey, actually like hemp is, is, is going to be big. Um, this is, this is what we're doing with, with our hemp oil, uh, product. And kind of, how did you, um, say kind of uh uh say that you had you know l list off i guess like the the traction that you needed to yeah yeah there's actually a, a a whole chapter in my book on this because um that show that we were at uh, whether you call it luck or just being in the right place at the right time uh, not only did we sell several hundred bottles of hemp oil that weekend and validated hey there's a there's a there's a there's an interest here um, uh, Vita Health, which was a chain of, of uh, seven stores um, in, in, in my home market here, was at the show. And the owner, literally his booth was right beside this, this little table that we had. And he came over and said, hey, all my customers are coming over and saying that they just bought a bottle of hemp oil from you. We need to have this in the store. And so we went from uh, one health food store across the street from my mom's place that uh, that I was selling to all of a sudden to a, our first chain of seven stores. Um, but not only that, uh, John Holtman, the owner of the store, um, 
became interested in the product and, and he, uh, and he became a mentor of mine and, and helped me understand what the, what the structure of the industry looked like, what, you know, the distribution and, and, uh, and the market and how many retailers. And, and so, um, you know, he, and also became one of our first shareholders when we raised some capital. And so it just, um, you know, putting yourself out there, putting myself out there in that right time and right place, uh, delivered not only the consumer, but our next level of customers as well. How also did you approach when you started getting to trade uh, trade shows? And how I I remember reading I think something on LinkedIn that you posted about how you're always hustling at um, at trade shows and also like what maybe entrepreneurs maybe are getting wrong when it comes to trade shows. What how did you approach them back in the early days? What why did you think maybe your approach how how it actually became very successful? Yeah. I think the number one that I've learned and, and I tell all entrepreneurs, just be yourself. Um, don't, don't, don't. My learning was the first trade show that I went to, not the consumer show, but the actual trade. Uh, I wore a suit. Okay. And I wore a suit because I thought, oh, we're going to do business. So, so people should, we should wear a suit there. And, and quickly I had several people tell me, what are you doing wearing a suit? And I was like, oh, well, I'm 21 year old. You know, I'm like, I'm here to do business. And they're like, you're the hemp guy. Like, you know, and, and so I, that from then on, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to dress more, you know, professional, but dress myself, you know, uh, and we actually took the, the the business into more of a sports casual uh, uh, branding of what we would wear. But I tell people, be yourself, um, and because if you're just yourself, and you're there sharing your positive vibe, sharing your product, sharing your messaging, um, the right people for you, the right community is going to form around you. It, it it really is a volume game from there. The more the more you put yourself out, the more trade shows you go to, the more conversations you have, you're going to develop that community. But it, it it has to start with you being authentically yourself, not trying to be someone else or trying to trying to look a certain way or dress a certain part. How also did you, I guess, attract people? Because of course, you know, at trade shows there's so many booths, there's so many you know people, obviously, um, but how did you attract people to your booth and how did you feel what do you think that was like successful about uh, about your your proposition to potential buyers maybe investors um other people that you know could be partners along the way that you think that you think you know what we actually did really well in this particular right here yeah, the great thing about hemp is that hemp uh, has always had a mystique to it. Um, you know, whether it was because people were, you know, it was a relative of marijuana, or or it was, you know, illegal and taboo for so many years. Um, there definitely was a a mystique that drew people in. Um, uh, so you know that that was working for us, but you know, besides that, we were just being really bold. We were, we were, we were, we were putting ourselves out there. I, I would go to, we'd be out in the aisle, not just in our booth, right. And drawing people in and talking to people, Hey, you know, come and come and try the product. We're, I guarantee you like it, you know, come, come and try a shot of hemp seed oil and, and, uh, uh, and learn all about it, you know? And then from there also getting involved, whatever that organization uh, was, whether it was, you know, the, the Canadian Health Food Association trade show or the Natural Products Expo or, or a specialty food show, we would get involved with um, with the show itself. And like, where can we go to for the networking event that they have? And can we enter ourselves into awards that they're that they're holding and like, you know, be be more a part of the community than just show up there and be in a trade show booth? Uh, and, and, and that, that's, that's really, um, has worked for us as we, as we continue to grow the business over, over two decades, was just be more and more a part of the community. How also did you approach the kind of customer education 
um, side to hemp oil because, you know, I, as we started this conversation, you know, hemp hemp was you know legalized very soon after you started, and so maybe people didn't really understand. They just talk about like like the negative kind of connotation to to hemp uh, being you know associate or or part of of the marijuana fa- family. But how how did you approach kind of the customer education that actually this is a very uh, nutritious food that actually um, could really help you? Yeah, a lot, a lot of you know our our marketing was. Uh, in the early days was more informational marketing because we, we realized we did have to educate uh, the, the the consumers and the trade. And so started on, uh, you know, uh, a black and white brochure that we printed on our office printer, um, explaining exactly what hemp was um, and what it wasn't, you know, its relation to marijuana, but it had no psychoactive drug to it. Uh, and then the nutritional properties uh, of the of the oils, and then also the, you know, the fats and the protein. And then we put little comparison charts of like how hemp oil compared to flaxseed oil and, and, and other oils. And the same thing with like how hemp hearts, how much protein it had compared to you know, meat or, or, or other nuts and seeds. And, and, and so it just, it created not only the education, um, but the sense of familiarity to, uh, to, to the marketplace. And I think that's really uh, has helped us out. What was like, you don't have to mention the name, but what was like the hardest, I guess, retailer in Canada to, I guess, convince that this was a trend that this was, um, to act, why it actually made sense to to sell your products in the store. I'm not I'm not shy to say it because it's the largest retailer in Canada. But Loblaws, um, under their number of banners they have, is have th- more than a thousand stores. Uh, was definitely the hardest retailer for us to um, uh, to to penetrate. And and our strategy and tactics um, were were more guerrilla marketing style. So at that point we were doing. Um, consumer health shows. Uh, so, you know, going to going over the weekend and, and sampling uh, right to consumers and selling our product there, uh, we armed uh, and for a good focus of like a year and a half uh, over probably 12 or 15 shows across Canada in the, in the different major cities, we would tell consumers like um, after they bought our products and they loved, you know, they learned all about the brand, they bought our products they f- and and would leave there with a kit of our products, we, we would give them extra brochures and say, go into your local Loblaws store and and uh, and tell the tell the health food store set manager there, give them one of our brochures and tell them that they need to, uh, to, to sell this product. So we're just doing this, right? And time goes on and time goes on. But what happened is one day we got a, we got a call from Loblaws. They called us, the head office called us and said, hey, all of our, our set managers from like 50 different stores are are saying that they're getting consumers coming into the store asking for your product. So uh, we need to sell your product. And at that time, as crazy as this is, um, because it's very expensive to do business with a retailer like that, uh, they, they didn't even charge us listing fees because we had the demand uh, in. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that tactic still would work nowadays uh, uh, in the same way, but um, uh, th- th- that was our approach. And, and it, it was really like a consumer demand first and, and, and then uh, and, and help to uh, penetrate that retailer. And, and were you, since you, that was, that's a really, really cool tactic. Were you able to satisfy that, that demand once you were in the actual stores across Canada? Yeah, we we you know because we we set up our business as a as a vertically integrated business where we controlled the uh, the farm the the farming of the, the the farming of the crop of the hemp seed and we own the manufacturing facility. Um, it was about controlled growth. The more stores we went into, the more products we created. We had to make sure that our facility was expanded. But you know, over the twenty years, we built uh, we built three different four different facilities, um, and and some of those facilities went through to 
two or three expansions. So it was kind of like a continual expansion. We'd be like, oh, we're listening to this new retailer. We need to make sure that we, uh, you know, we put more capacity on our packaging line or our production line and or, or growing more acreage of hemp. Uh, but we were we were in control of the whole process, so it, uh, um, it it was all taken into consideration when we were strategically planning. So why why were you vertically integrated from the from the get go? Is this because it was such a new category, it just became legalized that there wasn't any infrastructure already when it came to um, the supply chain? Yeah, well, it sounds yeah, it sounds genius, and I talk about it a lot now, saying like vertically integrated or controlling the process. I'm bullish on manufacturing stuff. The straight answer at that point, Mike, was that no one else wanted to do it. We couldn't convince someone else to make it, you know. And so we were like, okay, well, we're going to make it ourselves. And uh, and then and we had some resources like the uh, the food development center, uh, you know, so government assisted facilities. You can go in there and rent equipment or learn about manufacturing process. So we had the uh, we we had we had some of that as a resource, but um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't. You know, it was only a couple of years into the business um, that I learned. Oh, this is going to be a, a real strength of ours um, because we 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 learn more about the hemp seed um, right from farm gate right through to that consumer package than than anyone else do, did, and uh, and that's one of the strengths of why uh, you know Manitoba Harvest became the most valuable hemp food company in the world uh, by far, like by by um, by twenty or fifty x compared to the next company. And there was never any thought after at the beginning, hey, no one wants to produce it. Okay, we'll just produce it ourselves. There's never a thought along your journey as you're growing, as you're as you're doing very, very well. There was never thought to almost sell off that side that part of the business and actually then not become vertically integrated, right? No, there wasn't. Uh, the only thing that when we got ourselves a couple times over the years, um, call it a little more pinched, was because we we had invested in an expansion of the facility. And then something happened in the marketing or sales that weren't, we always were growing, but some years we wouldn't grow as fast, you know? Uh, like if we look back at the whole life cycle of the business, we had a 50% uh, year over year kegger. So co- compounded annual growth of 50%. But some of those years we grew, you know, only 10%. And then the next year we grow 100%. Well, in the years we grew 10%, but we had just made major investments in the facility, but not not so much the question of selling it off, but we had we asked ourselves the question: Do we need to be producing other things? Do we need to be producing like flax oil or other products outside of just hemp? Are we going to be able to scale this business enough, uh, continuing to be a hundred percent focus on on hemp foods? And uh, and so we we tested that strategy, you know. And I'm glad that um, that we you know we learned and we and we kept the approach of no, let's let's hundred percent be. Um, all things hemp, uh, and and uh, because that's really what worked out for us uh, strategically in the long run. When you talk to founders, how do you? Because it seems like that is a really cool, well, not really cool, but a interesting crossroads to be in, right? You have all this manufacturing, you have these manufacturing facilities, you've obviously invested and put it and put a lot of capex into these manufacturing facilities. And can it do the? Does it actually make sense to all be? Um, devoted to hemp, or you, or should you also introduce other products? Uh, just be just so you can operate at at full capacity. When you when you think about these these kind of questions, and then you decide to focus all on hemp, as you're advising investing in companies, how do you kind of advise companies about how to actually focus when it comes to SKUs, when it comes to products um, that that they should be producing? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, it's all about scale, right? Uh, and and scale is a little different for every business. Um, 
But you need scale to be successful. You need scale to be successful in manufacturing. You need scale usually from a product standpoint to have the right uh, gross margin. And scale um, is, is, you know, you need depth to have scale. So the, the, uh, the, the, the opposite of that is, is, is if you're going too wide, you know, so what, what I see is, um, you know, great companies that have, that only have one or two or three products and they've established themselves and they, and, and they have, you know, a meaningful amount of sales from that. There's a huge amount of opportunity to um, continue to focus uh, and get distribution growth and before they innovate anything else. And where I see, you know, entrepreneurs that I would, I would, um, you know, likely that it's not a right investment fit for me, but I would, I would mentor or coach them in if they had like 10 products that they're, that they manufacture, that they've produced already, but they're, they're doing less than a million dollars in sales. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 or, or they're in a thousand retailers and, and they're, and they're, and they're doing a less than a million dollars in sales. You can, you could say, you know, you, you have more risk of, um, in the future of growth because you're, you're not very focused. You're not very scalable. And, and sometimes, even businesses that are small yet have to retrench and like uh, discontinue some of their SKUs, which may even make their sales lower. Like sometimes you have to go from a million dollars of of of, of such a wide uh, SKU assortment and distribution, discontinue some of that, go down to like five or six or seven hundred thousand dollars to grow back up. And and obviously the same is true and even more true in larger businesses. But I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs, you know, more in startup mode, struggling from that. So it's better to have also, I guess, from a kind of distribution curve when it comes to sales it's much better to have like one or two kind of hit products that are doing kind of well that are um uh that you know most of your revenue are are earning from one or two products rather than than that to be kind of more evenly distributed um, among SKUs. is that is that roughly right too yeah, like it, and, and that the, in CPG that the the term of be an inch uh, an inch wide a mile deep, you know if you if you have one if you have one product that you're selling in a hundred stores and the velocity is is so strong in those stores, you're always going to have a chance to go and get distribution in the next hundred stores or next thousand stores. And if that one product is selling so strong, you're also going to your retailer partners are going to give you a chance to put a second SKU on the shelf uh, or a third SKU. Um, but the but the opposite is, is is true as well. If you're if you if you have too many SKUs in a store and, and none of them are selling well, like they're not hitting the velocity that that your retailer partner is expecting, you're just waiting the time to discontinuation. And as soon as you start getting discontinued products in, in retailers, um, it really hurts your brand. It, it it makes it hard to go and and uh, and grow and establish more distribution from there. So. Um, yeah, just it, focus on on one good thing that you're known for, or, or just a couple of products. Focal, focus in your local market first to establish a strong uh, velocity in the stores that you're selling to, and then plan your expansion out from there. Yeah, because then as well, if you have one product that's doing you know extremely well, instead of maybe four products that you know add up to one, you know, kind of like the sales of that one product is that you you kind of have a sh- more of a sure bet as well with with retailers and so they're a lot more open to to i'm sure bringing into your stores only releasing maybe one product to start with um because you know it's 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 performing so well whether as four that's then you know four or five or or ten or or whatever it is that's then a lot a lot more to manage um and um and and you don't quite know so that that makes a lot of sense yeah one of the things i always um uh, we talk to younger re- entrepreneurs about that are just getting into the CPG space or, or just even really starting to scale their business in the CPG space is 
understand the product that you're making, um, what the expectation is of the retailer uh, in the category for what the sales per week are of that. And, and it's different in every category, right? Whether you're making a, a, a coffee or tea product or, or you're making a chocolate bar or you're a non-dairy milk, you need to understand, you know, is, your, is the non-dairy milk, is that, is that category, that shelf in the store, are they, is the retailer expecting you to sell 12 units of your product per week in each one of their stores? Or is it six units per week? Um, what what's their expectation of the category? And 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 you know, big businesses buy data for this and and, and are pretty sophisticated. But when you're small, another reason why to 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 focus on a local market is because you can go in there and ask the retailer, ask the manager of the store, what's your expectation? You know, I'm I'm selling this uh, oat milk. Um, what's your expectation? Oh well, if you sell six of those a week, um, that that's good. That'll keep up with the rest of the uh, category. Then, then you can have something to focus on um, it, because if you're only selling three a week and the and the expectation is six a week, you're in trouble, right? Like if you don't get the number up to six, you're, you're gonna you're gonna get discoed when a new product comes in that that is promising to do better than yours. So having that understanding and and I think that's the trap is like you you have you have. Um, you have entrepreneurs that are selling only two or three units a week when they're supposed to, when they need to be selling six, and they're going and getting distribution in new stores uh, instead of focusing on that store to get the velocity up. And that's just that's just the wrong wrong use of their working capital. I think that's a great point in that because you might have benchmarks for yourself in terms of what how much you want to sell per year or you know maybe monthly or whatever it is, but actually talking to a retailer and saying, okay, what's, what's actually the benchmark or like the average for, you know, this particular category, like what actually, what's actually good to you, then that actually, you know, sets your expectations up as well, um, too, or, or where do you actually need to be? Um, and, and, and as you say, you know, if you don't meet that mark, you might, you might be at, at risk of getting, um, discontinued. And so, um, kind of understanding and knowing and knowing those benchmarks from the retailer, like that's, that that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, and I, 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 my strategy is usually, and it's worked for us, and I, I, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs this, is that I want to be, uh, I want to have an understanding of what the the retailer thinks the category um, should be selling, and I want to sell twenty five percent more. So you know, if the retailer is telling you that they're they're you know they they want to sell ten units per week per store of that SKU, I want to be selling twelve of our product because if you if you're doing better than the category everyone's going to be happy. Your retail partner, you're, you're going to be a, a gold star. And and guess what? When he goes and talks to his retail partner friends, he's going to be like, oh, you've got to have this product, you know? Like you use, use a, one of a portfolio company's midday squares has just done an incredible job of it. They're, 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 they're now the best-selling SKU of chocolate in the functional chocolate set, the refrigerated snacking set. So when they want to go and expand distribution, you're like, it's an easy sell. You're, you're selling more velocity than any other bar in that, in that set. Um, it, it, Every, every retailer is going to give you a shot from there, you know, but the, but the, you know, if you don't have an understanding of what the expectation is of how much you're supposed to be selling, you don't have a, you don't have a target in the first place. And also probably too, not only for a retail expansion, but probably you're also going to get maybe better placement in that retailer, right? Oh, you're doing quite well selling this amount. What if we give you, you know, better placement in our store, um, in, 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 in terms of on the shelf, um, or, or an end cap or, or, or whatever it is. And then see how you perform because maybe we have a winner here. Maybe our our placement though for you initially because you just got into it wasn't so great. So yeah. With Manitoba Harvest, when did you decide to expand to uh, to the United States? How many stores were you in in Canada? And like, what was that process like going from Canada to the U.S.? We expanded too soon, um, but uh, 
the timing was very different, you know. So we started the business in 1998. Um, and then we we launched in the U.S. in in uh, in, in 2000. Uh, uh, started shipping to the U.S. in 2000. Really did our launch in the U.S. in 2001. Um, but we were only at that time like a half a million dollars in sales. Uh, we had no for every business case and every entrepreneur I talk to nowadays. I was like, do not expand. You're still in your local market uh, territory uh, to to prove success for this business. But you know, I thought we had to go where the customers were and and uh, and that there was interest in hemp. Um, but uh, you know, it 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 it, it it's just it, it's a different business. You know, the 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 regulatory concerns, the labeling is different, uh, the 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 distribution is different, the 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 retail margins and promotional strategies and and expectations are different, and so you know, it it makes it more complex. Um, so a lot of a lot of Canadians. Uh, will uh, will think, oh, I got to get into Whole Foods in the U.S. You know that's going to be success for me. But if you're not ready, if you if you're not prepared, you're gonna you're gonna lose more than you're gonna gain uh, from a timing. So I wouldn't recommend the approach that that we did. And and nowadays, and 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 the uh, the portfolio of companies and and the and the the coaching and mentoring I do, it, it's the exact opposite. Like build your build a strong home market first, wherever your home market is. Even even in the even if you're in the U.S., like build if you're in California, build California. Don't think you're going to be going, and you should be shipping into the Northeast before you've really capitalized on on how big the market can be for for you in, in your local state. What's a stronghold market? Would you say for Canada? Like how many? If you're advising a company that's Canadian and they're they're doing pretty well, what to you when you realize okay, you have a very stronghold market? Like how many stores do you think roughly they they should be in revenue numbers? But then it may it might make sense to go into the U.S. or or uh, just expand to an, uh, another market. I think that, uh, you know, and, and I'm in Winnipeg, right? So I'm not in a huge market here. There's like a million people that live in Winnipeg, but, you know, Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver, um, in those markets, you should be able to get your first million dollars in sales in, in your, in your local city, like literally, you know, a couple hundred kilometers or miles from, from your home office or your, or your house. Um, and if you could do that, uh, and prove that kind of success first, then, then you can you could probably establish yourself as like a five million dollar uh, brand in Canada, and and I don't I, I don't think that before you expand anywhere else, and so I, I don't think that uh, people should be um, uh, going from Canada to the U.S. or or from one market to the other unless they're like a five going on ten million dollar uh, business because you're just gonna you know you're 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 gonna diversify your resources where where you wanna you wanna intensify your focus um, is is the way to quicker success. So, that's the uh, that's the thought. And st- unless it's a low cost risk, right? Like you're selling maybe to uh, an online retailer like Amazon, and so you, you don't you don't have all the um, you don't have all the challenges of, of brick and mortar retail and distribution in another state and product going sh- short dated on a on a shelf in in you know in Nebraska and you can't do anything about it. Uh, um, you know that, that's that's the right approach. No, that's that's helpful. So kind of that that a million dollar sales mark per se in, in local city. Obviously, it, de- it it depends how large that city is. But you know, reaching that kind of million million dollar mark in the, in the local city, then then you can maybe look to expand to you know, maybe another city. Like if you if you're if you hit like a million dollars in Toronto, then maybe you look to expand to Montreal. Yeah, and I, and I, and, I, and to your point there of like how many retailers, I love seeing like if if you have for your first million dollars, um, I think. Uh, there's two things. What's your minimum viable community that you need to get to that million dollars? Um, and I like to think about it as probably about 10,000 uh, consumers in your community, because on average, buying 100 bucks a year is going to get you your million dollars. Um, and, th- and that probably you, you only need a network of 
maybe a hundred or a couple hundred stores really selling good velocity to be able to reach that many uh, consumers. And so if you've built that density in your, in your home market, um, you have all the opportunity to expand from there. With all this being said, what's your approach? Because I know that you obviously invest in in many CPG companies like Midday Squares who've had on the show and, and are fantastic. Yeah, so it... it um, it starts with product first. I, I have to personally love the product um, and consume the product in my house um, on, on as, as a routine. Um, so it starts with that. And sometimes I, 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 I like actually discovering the product in store uh, and having it in my house and, and, and getting in routine with that, sometimes before meeting the founder. Uh, and then from meeting the founder, um, it's also, um, you know, someone that I want to hang out with, someone that I'd want to have at my house, have over for dinner, um, you know, actually enjoy hanging out with. Uh, those two, the product and founder, are are critical to even get my foot in the door to analyze the business. Uh, from there, it's you know typical from an investment standpoint. Like, what's the growth? Uh, what's the growth? The trajectory and opportunity for the business. What's the gross margin structure? Is it defendable? Are they manufacturing and they and they have some moats to defend that? You know, uh, you know, how's gross margin looking? And then and then. Um, and then you know from the, their their investment that they've had to date and the structure of their cap table and and uh, and that kind of opportunity for me to step in and and uh, and really add value uh, not only with a potential investment um, but with uh, you know strategy and 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 and, and advising the founders or, or or being on the board to to help with their strategic planning and and growth from there. When you think about growth and growth projections, you know there's a number of products that are quite successful and do really well in in the natural channels that are you know obviously better for you but very few are able to kind of cross that chasm and get and get into um conventional grocery how is that part of your anal um when you're analyzing products i mean i know obviously it seems like you have to love it you have to love the the product love the founders but how are you also analyzing from that perspective of all right, will this work in conventional grocery? What actually needs to be true in order to work in conventional grocery? Um, I'll, I'll kind of stop right there. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, if you look at my my portfolio, um, I'm, I'm more of a venture investor, not, not, a, uh, not an angel investor. So I want to establish a, a business. Um, and and usually, usually the business is doing you know, five million dollars or north of five million dollars in, in revenue already before uh, before I'm going to uh, invest. Usually, not not all the time, but usually. Um, and so um, they already have probably have some tests in um, in grocery, um, and and there's some you know there's some data on how the brand is doing. At the same time, as a as a as an entrepreneur that's been in the in the natural product space for 25 years. I, I understand the omni-channel approach. Like things are changing, where more and more grocery retailers are are putting larger and larger sections of their store to natural, organic, better for you, healthier product, and and uh, and so it's um, you know probably to go back to to your your question directly, it's the density uh, that they've created in in the in the in the retailers that they're selling in already will give a good. Um, We'll, we'll give some good analysis to what the what the growth potential is there in a larger universe of of retailers. Got it. So just looking at what um, like how much velocity they're actually doing in their actual um, kind of uh, in, in the natural channels, and 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 then um, if that, and then I guess they can really paint a very compelling story to actually get them in in conventional. Yeah, exactly. 
going back to Manitoba, I mean, your first liquidity event happened when you had sales roughly over 100 million. Why did it happen? Why do you think it was right to do a liquidity event? What was um, what was the reason? Yeah, well, we had so we had two two liquidity events actually. The first one uh, in 2015, the business was doing uh, about 50 million in sales, and um, and we had some uh, we had venture uh, venture capital investments in the business that uh, had already been in the company uh, invested for five or six years, and they were getting to the end of the life cycle of their fund, and so they they were one of the drivers of of hey, is now the time to to, to, to sell the business or look for, uh, look for the next partner. And so we, we did a, uh, a formal auction process and, and, uh, and did sell majority, uh, uh to a private equity, uh, sponsor, <clears throat> uh, partner. And, um, uh, and then, and that, that gave us a tremendous amount of, uh, new capital into the business, which we, we used to, uh, acquire Hemp Oil Canada, our biggest competitor, like six months after that. And then, uh, and then really established ourselves as the true global leader in, in, in hemp foods, uh, with two manufacturing facilities, a team of over 200 people, uh, and then just kept growing. And, uh, and then three years later, uh, we had, uh, we had sales of, of, uh, about a hundred million dollars. And, and, uh, and that's when, um, uh, that's when we decided to sell the business more so then because of the timing was just, perfect like the um, Canada had just legalized recreational cannabis so the uh, the excitement on on cannabis altogether was really high you had all these recreational cannabis companies um, that that had huge balance sheets because they're they were publicly traded companies had a lot of cash on their balance sheet and were looking for um, all things cannabis even you know including the non-regulated uh, hemp foods and so uh, we were we we saw the opportunity there at the same time you know the US legalized hemp and and finally opened up the uh, the commercial farming operations for hemp so timing was just super right in 2019 and and uh, and so we we performed the uh, transaction with Tilray and and sold the business for you know 419 million dollars to uh, to Tilray incredible incredible i mean congratulations on just uh, that's that's amazing that's amazing Timing's everything, Mike. You know, yeah. No, I, I, I've seen people, friends, go. You know, have great businesses, but just miss the timing and and kind of go over the waterfalls, and then they they lose the lose a tremendous amount of value or lose the opportunity to to sell the business or get the right partner on uh, just because they they miss the timing. You know, same could be true even if someone looks at. You know, um, the late my latest transaction with Soul Cuisine that we sold uh, uh, a year ago. Um, in the, the you know soul cuisine is the one of the legacy companies in the plant-based protein space in canada the market was so uh hot for for plant-based protein foods and uh, and we had the ability to sell that business um, for 125 million dollars cash which was five times sales um but it, it just because timing was so right it was a great business and, and great products but timing was so right if you look now you know, it, it, it's a different marketplace for for all these plant based food companies, whether they're publicly traded or or, or private. Uh, um, so, you know, entrepreneurs should always be thinking about uh, timing, especially when they're when they're really growing a business to scale and looking for uh, looking for liquidity opportunities. No, that's a great that's a really great point. Um, I remember talking to a person how he sold his business, you know, a few years um, after um, Prime, and he he said, you know, I could have got it for a lot more. And 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 had a lot more successful eggs if I told uh, uh, earlier and kind of and, and kind of kicking myself. So and I imagine 20, 2019 was a pretty good time to sell a business, not so much uh, probably right right at this moment in time. Um, uh, what's um, what's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? 
you know, I like the uh, probably a mix. I mean, uh, Tim Ferriss. I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss. The Four Hour Work Week has been one that uh, that probably both personally and professionally uh, has has uh, has has hit me. Um, only because I, I I I used to think, and part of how I grew up on on like you know working construction and then and then starting a business, I thought I thought you always had to work really hard. Like, you know, like sacrifice and work hard and and i'm a hard worker uh and and i do you know i trem- i do a, a, even now I, I i love you know grinding weeks where i'm creating new things but i've learned through some of the philosophy and some of the example that um you, you don't have to you don't have to kill yourself you could you can get into intense amounts of deep work um and uh, and and still have a balanced lifestyle and 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 even be a more successful entrepreneur and and person you know family life and stuff yeah really glad you brought the book so that that's a great one um mike this has been so much fun thanks again for your time yeah well i should have mentioned you know the uh if i if i can mike you know yeah of course yeah my uh my book uh i've been writing for the last year and a bit uh grow 12 unconventional lessons for becoming an unstoppable entrepreneur uh drops in in march so um hoping people pick up a copy of that uh it it, uh, it'll be a good uh it'll be good tools and and some uh, strategies and tactics i think will will impact a lot of entrepreneurs i'm excited to read it mike should be uh, um that's great that's great really excited to to read it and learn further from you really appreciate it well mike this has been so much fun thanks again for your time yeah you're very welcome and there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Mike. I really appreciate him coming on the show and stopping by. I highly recommend pre-ordering or ordering his book, depending on when you are listening to this episode on Amazon. Thanks for listening, folks. 